The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I used all of my available credit to pay someone to smuggle me out. That's how I was able to get Alex to the flats. Now he won't have to grow up a prisoner like his mother. No, you just grow up with the horror of having been abandoned. Who are you to judge me? What I did, I did for him. Carol, listen to me. In the closing days of World War II, I was a small child. My mother took me out into the country to spend some time with some elderly aunts. The second night we were there, the house was bombed. My aunts were killed. I woke up to find the firemen pulling my dead mother off my chest. She had thrown herself over me to protect me, you see. They did not know who I was. They had no way of identifying me. My father was in India, fighting. So they put me in an orphanage till the war ended and he came back to pick me up. Four months, every day and every night, I, I wept because I knew I would never see my parents again. All my life I have lived with the fear and terror of that abandonment. I beg you, don't do this to your child. No. Don't let your child grow up with that demon. I won't. I'm going to pay off my debt. I'm going to have this removed and then I'm going to get him back. Look, will you wake up? The system is so set up that you cannot possibly pay back the debt. You are always going to have this on your wrist. And unless we do something special, you will never get to see your child. Don't cry. I promise you, I, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but I will do everything I can to help you. In the meantime, don't build up more debt. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, September 3rd, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western, where we'll be with you from now till noon. It's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be are you feeling like an economic slave or a slave to economics? That's one of our first topics today. All four of my topics today have been sitting on the back burner for a while, if I can put it that way. This past June was the 80th anniversary of the renowned Parker Brothers board game Monopoly, and it should be fitting that the history of how this game evolved is how we'll round off our show today. Because another monopoly I plan to discuss as the show progresses is the city of London's taxi industry, particularly now in light of the city having charged 18 Uber drivers with failing to comply with the bylaw. The contradictions and misinformation and distractions that are being pushed by both the city and cab industry were bordering on outrageous, and I found myself this past Monday in debate on another radio station with past city councillor and current spokesman for the taxi monopoly, Roger Crancy. Of course, Crancy denied that there's a monopoly because London has, hey, four taxi brokers, which tells me he doesn't really get that the monopole and monopoly is the government, not the businesses, but more on that later. Also on the show today, in the category of, I guess, with friends like these, capitalism doesn't need enemies department, there's the conservative assertion of author and social critic George Gilder that capitalism works, get this, because it is altruism in, in action. When you hear it, you'll think it actually sounds reasonable in some ways, but when you think about it, you'll come to realize that 
hey, it's totally bonkers. <laughs> so our themes today are about the differences between capitalism and capitalists, between self-interest and altruism, between monopolies and free markets, and perhaps a few others, including economic slavery. <laughs> and, uh, and now I have the perfect current controversy, Uber, to help me illustrate many of the principles involved. But before we get underway, don't forget you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Now, you know, I've heard this phrase bantied about, and it really speaks to a fundamental emotional uh, reaction that people have to, well, life in general, I guess, and capitalism in particular. And it comes, I guess, in the form of the question, are we born into some sort of economic slavery? I've heard this phrase bantered around a lot. And is there such a thing? I, I would say no and no strictly, but there are ways in which you can say that in a figurative way. Not as long as you're strictly talking economics. But there is debt, which would be an obligation to another person, and that could very much become a form of quote-unquote slavery, particularly if the person in debt has no option of escape, like bankruptcy, or ever having the ability to pay the debt off in any way. And especially if the debtor were put into bondage or forced labor by law, as was the case in our sliders opener today. But in the context that the idea of economic slavery is most often raised, it's about the daily grind and the cost of living, which might or might not include debt. So that's a separate issue entirely, I think. And this economic slavery concept has to be challenged before I even begin to embark on the rest of our topics. I think it just, there's that attitude there. You know, you hear, we're slaves to the job, we're slaves to the daily routine, we're slaves to consumerism, we're even slaves to shopping. We've all heard some variant or saying that expresses this sentiment. But here's the problem, I think, with this kind of thinking. I mean, you can say it in passing. I'm not getting, you know, not going to be that <laughs> hard on this. But at the root of all of these popular misconceptions about capitalism, I think that's what the issue is, and of how capitalism is the thing that always needs fixing, you see, because capitalism is, of course, one of the main ways we make our money. And I think that this whole concept is a source of a, of a deeply hel um, felt rather hatred of capitalism, which translates, really, you can't avoid it, into a hatred of life itself, whether we realize it or not. Somehow those wishing to escape their so-called economic slavery would like to have a choice that would make that possible. Existence and survival, you know, without being quote-unquote forced to exert effort. So let me begin with the bottom line here and work up to the rest of the equation as we progress through the hour. Uh, you know, I mentioned this before, oddly enough, on the show where we were talking about um, Black Sails, the, the, the show we did a couple weeks ago on the television show Black Sails, where we discovered how slavery existed in the 1700s and how few choices there were until free trade developed. So, you know, we have two grand choices. We can either choose to produce goods and services under capitalism, which is a system in which coercion is pro pro prohibited in the economic realm, or we can exist under various forms of, and I'm using the term a little loosely, slavery, which can only be defined and measured to the degree that coercion is being legally applied in a given context. Before capitalism, of course, slavery or systems one step removed from it, such as serfdom, 
were the only ways to organize production. There was no other way to do it. Slavery still today, the major way many totalitarian countries produce anything. And it's always a pittance of production compared to what you can get with free labor, which is not unpaid labor, but labor free of coercion, okay? Slavery was eventually ended by capitalism here in North America and in the United States, and for no other reason. But as far as uh, the so-called economic slavery goes, let's be clear about these fundamental truths about which everything else uh, just never gets focused if you, don't, if you aren't aware of them. So let's put these unpleasant realities on the table because there are certain things that if you choose to live, once you've made that choice, you don't have these certain choices. Because the process of life itself imposes upon each and every one of us the responsibility for our own survival and well-being. So if your objective is to live and survive, and that's the choice you have to make, well then the following choices are no longer available, since a choice to live closes them as choices to us, at least until you choose not to live anymore, if you're going to make a choice like that. For example, we had no choice about being born, we have no choice about our biological needs and growth, nor about the environment in which those needs must be met. We have no choice about the fact that we have to eat every day. We need food. So nature has imposed an obligation on us to produce that food. We have no choice about the fact, uh, you know, that we have to go to the bathroom and we have to sleep every day. We need shelter. So nature has imposed an obligation on us to provide that shelter, whatever form it might happen to take. We have no choice about our physical responses that cause pain or pleasure. We have no choice about the fact that we require, this is the important one, accurate knowledge in order to know how to meet the other natural obligations Im imposed upon us. So, and you know, we also have no choice, of course, in the end about the fact that we will all eventually pass away and die. So, um, you know, none of these natural obligations related to survival imposed upon us as they are qualify for the label of slavery. Slavery is a phenomenon only applicable to a particular relationship between people, one in which some people or one person who have right status or privilege have complete control over another in some regard, that individual or group having no right status or privileges uh, and aren't equal to those in, in control. There are indeed many people who personally regard these natural obligations as a form of slavery. They don't care that, it, that, that nature imposes it upon us. And I think this kind of thinking is often associated with the philosophical acceptance of, of the mind-body split, the belief that our thoughts and, and our consciousness um, you know, can somehow be separated from our physical bodies. The mind would like to go in one direction, but hey, the body objects. And uh, such a person views a mind in, in conflict with the body. So we're, we're, you know, they say, well, we're slaves to our physical needs. And many people even go so far as to regard this as a moral crime of some sort. And they would argue that we're not free until our basic physical needs are met or until we're free of the needs themselves, which was only possible in death. Now, there's one sense in which you might say that meeting your physical needs results in a lack of constraint, though nothing to do with slavery, and that's the economic sense. It's only when your physical needs have been met that your mind has the option and luxury to turn its attention to issues and activities that go beyond mere immediate existence and survival. You can plan for the future, and that's why we have everything from toilets to smartphones, because people were finally put in a position where they had that time to make that kind of, do that kind of thinking and do that kind of production. 
So to say that one's an economic slave is to say that one can be a slave to oneself, since whatever debt was incurred was incurred due to the benefit of the so-called slave who received and accepted the money consensually. So economic slavery is, in that context, an anti-concept. It's like saying, you know, self-censorship. You can't censor yourself. You can censor others, or you can be censored by others, but you can't censor yourself. Now, on the larger scale, of course, and you can think of Greece when, when I'm saying this, nations themselves can become economic slaves or turn their citizens into such. The consequences of their philosophical, political beliefs, not, not economic beliefs, although it's about economics, long before the debts become unsustainable. So never forget that the source of this slavery is political and therefore can be considered a real legitimate form of slavery. Income taxes are a form of, quote, economic slavery, but the obligation of such taxes is determined by government, uh, you know, an agent of force. It's if when it, when it gets up to half of what, you know, when half of what you earn goes to government, then you're kind of a slave for that period of time. We've talked about that before. Of course, the Fraser Institute's Tax Freedom Day is a symbol of this. So again, in the absence of capitalism, slavery, forced labor, or some variant of it, is the only option whether it's serfdom or, or job rationing, which, by the way, we're seeing in Ontario now under the College of Trades, uh, which is really a giant step away from capitalism and towards a form of this economic slavery, if you will, when a government which is an instrument of force is the cause or the reason of your economic status, then maybe it's time you start using some of these phrases. Um, you know, I remember my parents were raised in a form of semi-slavery, namely serfdom, under which the landowners, yes, capitalists, believe it or not, were the effective masters, which is in essence what schemes like Ontario's College of Trades are really about at their core. Governments trying to become the regulators of supply and demand in place of the market mechanisms, which already effectively and accurately solve those problems without any effort or cost. Think about that principle when we talk about the, the Uber controversy a little later. So now, before we move on to the next unalterable reality, what really drives the god of the machine, mainly capitalism and the production and wealth? And uh, before we proceed on the other side of our upcoming bumper to hear why author George Gilder thinks that altruism is the secret to capitalism's success, which, by the way, is something I strongly disagree with for those of you who are in any doubt. Uh, well, first we're going to take this fanciful or fantasyful illustration um, of a principle. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen the show before, but in the superb fantasy TV series called The Highlander, with Adrian Paul as Scottish Highlander Duncan MacLeod, there are a number of individuals who are immortal in that series, meaning they can only die by beheading, and in a process where each beheader gains the powers of the beheaded. Yeah, I know, it's, it's just all science fiction, but it serves a function. These immortals have one additional no-choice circumstance to the ones I listed earlier with which they have to deal. Their status of immor immorality, or <laughs> immortality rather, forces them to play a game, quote-unquote, where in the end there will be only one. It's the ultimate monopoly, very symbolic of the economic and political objectives behind the Uber controversy and everywhere there are political prohibitions and restrictions on trade. Regrettably, a significant minority of people in business think like this and would like to see their competition either eliminated or cut out of the game entirely, as, again, in the case with the controversies we'll be talking about and almost every labor and union dispute. So in this next scene, immortal Duncan MacLeod has traveled to China to meet his very, very old and also immortal good friend and mentor, Kim Soon. 
Kim Soon is an entrepreneur of sorts and has invited him to witness a discovery he's been working on to help mankind out of the darkness, part of which includes having developed a drug that can eliminate pain, but which turns its users into obedient slaves. His real purpose? To use these obedient slaves to protect him from the competition and from having to play the immortal game, and Duncan MacLeod has a lesson for him. Why are we meeting on holy ground? Are you going to tell me your plan to kill me? Don't be foolish. If I wanted your head, would I warn you first? No. This sacred place affords me protection from, shall we say, less honorable of our circle. <laughs> I needed time alone. Well, you've had a hundred years since we last saw each other. And I have used them well. Nature is like a woman, MacLeod. If she is wise, she does not give up her mysteries quickly. Imagine if Galileo or Da Vinci had been of our kind. What wonders they could have coaxed from her. You have fermented the Quanla root. A hundred years, but I've done it. Well, he did say that it would not be simple. I must have the determination to succeed, I know, but what does he call 100 years of sleepless nights? But, a few months ago, I found it. The world is within my grasp. You know, it is a shame you did not find a potion for humility. You shall see. No quarter. Is this your idea of helping mankind out of the darkness? Combat is the perfect way to test the potion's power. These men could fight from now until sunset without fear or pain. Mortals are lost children. We could hold them kicking and screaming into the sunlight. If you do not stop this, I will. Stop! I had no intention of taking it to the death. You have lived three times as long as I, Kim Sun. Have all these years taught you nothing? Men achieve greatness when they have freedom. Freedom to fail if necessary, but freedom. Now, no one disputes that all economic systems reflect the intrinsic self-concern of human beings. But only capitalism creates a group of people known as entrepreneurs who have no choice but to concern themselves with the needs and desires of others. These others are their customers. Few economists, however, actually study the behavior of these entrepreneurs, the creative leaders of capitalist businesses. If they did, they would discover that entrepreneurs, by the very nature of what they do, 
must shun greed. First and foremost, responding to others is the very opposite of greed. Second, greed in the economic sphere is normally expressed as the immediate consumption of goods and services. I grab what I can without regard for others. But entrepreneurs must begin by saving, which is defined as foregoing consumption to achieve long-term goals. Often it takes months, sometimes many years, to bring a new product or service to market. Furthermore, entrepreneurs must collaborate with others, building teams to achieve their aims. In designing their goods and services, they must, once again, focus not on their own needs, but on the needs of others. This, too, is the opposite of greed. So what entrepreneurs do when they seek profit is far more than self-interest. Rather, profit is a measure of how well a company has served others. Under capitalism, a business prospers only if customers voluntarily trade for its output. And it's only by improving its service to others that a business can thrive and grow. If the entrepreneur pursues his own interests first and his customer's interests second, his business will fail. And sooner or later, an altruistic entrepreneur will surpass him. Capitalism at its essence, then, is a competition of giving. Of course, self-interest is involved, but the genius of capitalism, and only capitalism, is that it channels self-interest into altruism. Entrepreneurs can only help themselves by helping others. All those who have started a business and made great sacrifices to do so know the drama of that first day. Does the world want what I have to give? Whether it's an immigrant opening a beauty salon or Steve Jobs selling an Apple computer, success is far from guaranteed. In fact, it's just the opposite. Those courageous souls, the entrepreneurs who are the beating heart of capitalism, who bring us the endless material benefits we enjoy, from ATM machines to life-saving medicines, should be held up for admiration, not torn down. Altruism is the very reason for capitalism's existence and why it remains the hope of civilization. I'm George Gilder for Prager University. Uh, I got to tell you, as an advocate of capitalism, I sure have my work cut out for me, don't I? Uh, never mind defending capitalism, just trying to keep up with defining it properly in the wake of this constant on onslaught of misinformation and confusion, you know, it's kind of a full-time job. Let's go through some of the points we just heard author George Gilder make. He says, only capitalism, only capitalism creates a group of people known as entrepreneurs who have no choice but to concern themselves with the desires and needs of others, which, who are their customers. Well, it, that sounds semi-sensible, but it really makes no sense, because if all economic systems, as he said, because he says no, no one disputes that all economic systems reflect the intrinsic self-concern of human beings. So if that's true, 
And if self-concern requires concerning oneself with the needs of others, then what's the difference? What difference does the economic system make? Why would an entrepreneur in China, under communism, behave any differently from an entrepreneur in Ontario under socialism? Entrepreneurs, he says, by the very nature of what they do, must shun greed. First and foremost, responding to others is the opposite of greed. Actually, as he described it here, responding to others would be to respond to their greed. He can't be shunning greed. He's got to be appealing to the greed of other people. And then he says, uh, you know, greed is expressed in, econo in the economic sphere it is normally expressed as immediate consumption of goods and services. Um, I don't know about that. I think that's called being a consumer, being a, cu being a customer. If, I, if I'm eating right now, I'm immediately consuming my goods. Does that make me greedy? Uh, it, it's just it's just a complete mess up of, of definitions and then he talks about how entrepreneurs you know they begin by saving and foregoing consumption and set long-term goals etc to bring a new product to market it sounds like uh, Kim soon in our in our example earlier in Highlander it took a hundred years for him to develop his product and he says entrepreneurs must collaborate with others in building teams to achieve their aim. All true. But again, this is true of entrepreneurs in any country under any system. And he says in designing their goods, they must not focus on their own needs, but on the needs of others. Uh, this is the opposite of greed, he says. Well, I don't think it's the opposite of greed. I don't think it has anything to do with greed at all. What entrepreneurs do when they seek profit, he says, is far more than self-interest. Um, well, you cannot do self-interest. <laughs> self-interest is the motivation, not the action, and there are no other known human motivators that I'm aware of do not, that don't somewhere boil down to self-interest. But none of this has anything to do with capitalism. Let's keep the focus on w what context he's saying this in. He says profit is a measure of how well a company has served others. Well, that could be true, but it's not necessarily true, and so it's probably wrong. It, uh, profit is a measure of how well the company itself was managed. It could have served others quite well and still lost a fortune and then gone bankrupt. So there's no guarantee of that. And he says, uh, under capitalism, a business prospers only if customers voluntarily trade for its output. Well, that's easy to say, since capitalism means voluntary and free of coercion. There's no point in being made in this regard, but still, all the voluntary traders in the world won't make you prosperous if your prices are too low, causing an economic loss, or if you still go out and spend more money than, you volu than, you, than your voluntary customers are providing the income for. Similarly, under capitalism, a business could fail even with customers voluntarily trading for its output. As, as Duncan MacLeod said, you know, men achieve greatness when they have freedom, and the freedom to fail, if necessary, but freedom. And then, uh, and of course, Gilder says, if an entrepreneur pursues his own interests first and the customer second, his business will fail. Well, yeah, in capitalism, maybe, that's possibly true, but again, it doesn't guarantee success. And he says, and sooner or later, an altruistic entrepreneur will surpass him. Well, oh, that's just a bunch of crap. Just because another business has more customers than yours does not mean that your business is a failure, nor that the other guy is more altruistic. All things being equal, if the other guy is beating you, it's because of your price, your product, your location, or your reputation, but it won't be because you are or are not altruistic or greedy. The customer has no way of knowing what's going on in the minds of the entrepreneurs, and that's not what he's reacting to. So this is all sort of a self-contained thinking. 
And here's the one that I couldn't get over. Capitalism is, in essence, a competition of giving. Of course, self-interest isn't involved, but the genius of capitalism, and only capitalism, is that it channels itself into, uh, channels self-interest into altruism. To which I say, well, capitalism is not about giving. Politically, it's about economic freedom. Economically, it's about buying and selling in a free of coercion market, period. Capitalism does channel self-interest through voluntary and consensual channels of exchange as opposed to forced spending and exchanges, but that's not altruism. That's just nonviolence. But it's still a plus for capitalism. You can't, can't beat that. And he says, entrepreneurs can only help themselves by helping others. <clears throat> well, entrepreneurs aren't in the business of helping themselves or others. They're in the business of making money. And to do that, they have to sell something to others, which is not helping others per se, unless they do it for free, which I don't think is what he's talking about. But <clears throat> entrepreneurs want money for their quote-unquote help, which by this point sounds so ridiculous that, that if this has to be explained, it's almost scary. And then he points out how all, all those who have started a business make great sacrifices, etc., etc. Well, that's that's true under any system. It's not just capitalism. Remember, there are elements of market. Markets exist and capitalists exist in all countries, whether they're capitalist or not. And um, he says entrepreneurs should be held up for admiration, not torn down. Uh, if you're talking strictly about capitalistic entrepreneurs, here finally is a point with which I can agree, uh, if you take away all the other altruistic garbage and baggage. Altruism is the very reason for capitalism's existence and why it remains the hope of civilization, he says. Well, <coughs> capitalism is civilization. If you define a civilized society as one in which the use of force and coercion are prohibited, that's the basic rule of capitalism, and that's what civilization is. You don't use force. You don't settle your disputes by banging somebody on the head. You use reason. You use consent. And, uh, you know, altruism is the reason for the existence of socialism, communism, fascism, where these concerns are forced upon all. So altruism is not the friend of capitalism, trust me. <laughs> you know, on a personal level, altruism and greed, of course, exist under every form of governance, just as capitalists agree or, or uh, exist under every form of government. The essence of capitalism is a moral code. It's not related to altruism or self-interest in the sense of that being the starting point. It's, it's all part of one thing. A moral code predicated on the principle that all transactions should be consensual, free of physical coercion, criminals, fraud, trade barriers, price controls, business monopolies, labor monopolies. So if you resort to force or a monopoly in the marketplace, whether you're motiv motivated by greed or altruism, that's not capitalism. And like freedom, which is a political and social condition, capitalism is also a condition, an economic one, that ideal condition being a marketplace free of coercion. And under such uh, a system, it's very rare that one person's self-interests and motivated actions would harm another. Altruism, on the other hand, is about sacrifice, about playing, yes, placing the interests of others ahead of your own. But if entrepreneurs and businessmen and capitalists were really driven by altruism, and in particularly as a moral standard, then the issue of profits or losses would become irrelevant so long as the enterprise was satisfying the needs and desires of others, you see. So whether consciously intended or not, the net effect of arguing that capitalism is altruism 
is in effect to dismiss or refute the moral premise and power of rational self-interest. There can be no other consequence to this m misguided argument. Altruism always ends up with this argument as being the good, while self-interest, referred to as greed or selfishness, is either irrelevant or morally inferior to altruism. There's no getting around this, as Gilder has placed it within his forms of arguments, and that's why I think his argument's not only wrong, but essentially immoral. Now, when we return on the other side of our upcoming break, one clear local example of what I'm talking about, <coughs> the Uber controversy, um, and the City of London laying charges to prevent freedom of contract and freedom of trade. The City wants to administer and regulate a privately owned monopoly, the ownership part being the private half and the monopoly part being played by the guy with the gun, the local government, and I'll be commenting on that and uh, my brief exchange this week with past municipal councillor Roger Carancy on another radio station. If nothing else, the Uber controversy is a perfect example of how George Gilder's nonsense about capitalists being motivated by altruism is just completely wrong and misguided, and it stands as a monument to why capitalism is still the unknown ideal. You know, selfish for others or altruistic for oneself? Why not just throw the whole English language in the toilet and we'll be able to babble our way to capitalistic success? So here's Yaron Brook, head of the Ayn Rand Institute, and who was a guest on this show, speaking to this very point at a, at a May 2013 Freedom Party event in Toronto, the morality of capitalism. Let's listen in. What I mean by capitalism is, is governments out of our lives in terms of economics that it has no involvement in our economic life, that it doesn't coerce us to do or not do. I mean free markets, I mean free. Free of coercion, free of government coercion. So what is it about capitalism? What is it about these free markets that is so, you know, just gets us at the gut and causes us immediately to tell oh, there's something wrong with that. And you can see it if you go out into this university, go out over there and ask people about capitalism. And it's an emotional response. They don't even have time to really think it through. It's a, it's a negative, right? right? It's very, very emotional, very guttural. What is it about capitalism? What is capitalism about? What are markets? Any market. What is a market about? What do people do in a marketplace? They exchange, but they exchange for what purpose? Why are they exchanging? Self-interest for profit. Yeah, so, so why, why does somebody make one of these? Right? Why does Steve Jobs make an iPhone? To sell it. Sell it for what? Because he loves people? Does he care about me? When he, when he builds one of these, is he thinking, oh, you're on... I really like Iran, I want to make him an iPhone. <laughs> I mean, if he did, then why charge me 60% profit margin? What's he trying to do? Make money. Make money. See, you're even a little uncomfortable with that. <laughs> it is, you are. I know. Because nobody wants to admit, right? And it's not just about money. Steve Jobs is more than just money. What else does he want to do? He wants to make something beautiful. He wants to make something useful. He wants his vision. Steve Jobs' vision, to be out there in reality. He loves this stuff, but he loves it. Steve Jobs is being selfish. Selfish, he's being self-interested. This is about Steve Jobs.
Everybody is speaking French. Know, it's like a second language to these people. Uh, excuse me, uh, you are American boys? Yeah. Uh, you want a taxi to Paris? No, thank you. Uh, no, no, we're gonna, too we're gonna take the uh, bus. Uh, no, 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 I make special price for you because you are American boys. It's cheaper, faster, and much, much safer. Hmm? Come with me. Shall we go? Why not? It's uh, cheaper and faster and much, much safer. <laughs> You boys are in a hurry! <laughs> hurry? Uh, no, it's okay, you can just take your time. Oh, man. Oh, you bastard! Get out of my way! Hey, where'd you learn how to drive? You still late? How much do we owe you? Uh, 400 francs. For, I'm sorry, the, the, the meter says 200. Oh yes, 200 for you and 200 for him. That's 400. Thank you. Wait, what's that for? Uh, le service, the tip. Merci, au revoir. Service the tip? You can't give me a tip for that ride. I think we just got ripped off, amigo. Because we're American, boise. <laughs> that scene was from the coming-of-age movie Gotcha, which was a really fun ride, pardon the pun, especially given the visual, that the visual in that scene was sped up for effect. If there's anything else that needs to be mature and come-of-age, it's London's taxi industry, which is obviously a, a form of a monopoly, even though there's went from two to four brokers over the past few years. I think it's time to grow up and drop the monopoly status and let the market decide how and at what prices people want to purchase their transportation needs. Now, before I begin, I want to make one clear statement in case I don't get the time to make it, and that is to be fair to the current taxi industry. They do have one legitimate complaint, that they would continue to be shackled by the artificial economic constraints imposed by the city while the Uber drivers get to carry on their free trade. And that's clearly unfair. But the answer is not to shackle everyone, but to free them. And with that, I finally learned a lot about this whole issue in a more direct sense, and more uh, official sense, because of uh, I listened in on uh, CJBK's Andy Utman show this past Monday, where I was able to hear Orest Katolik, who is uh, the chief bylaw enforcement officer of the city, speaking on the pro on the issue of Project License Ride, which is a project targeted targeting unlicensed vehicles for hire over two days. Um, Eighteen drivers were fined with twenty nine. Fines. Not all were from the London area. Several resided outside London and were, quote, testing out the market, as he said, but I don't think that's quite true after what I heard later. But here's something else Mr. Katolik said. He said, this, isn't, this is not something new to us. We had a similar issue about five years ago during the LTC strike. Anybody with social media in their hands, a vehicle and some time on their hands, thought they'd make a quick buck by taxiing around passengers in the city. We took a strong approach at that time also. So don't let it ever be said that these politicians have our interests at, in, at hand because I cannot believe that they would be going around fining people for giving people rides, even if for money, during an LTC bus strike. That's about as low as you can go. I, I, I just, it just beyond the pale for me. 
And then you had, then Oris Katolik says, Uber and other similar, similar type companies could come into City Hall today, apply to be a broker, work with licensed vehicles, work with licensed drivers, no different than many of our brokers are doing today. He says, I know at least three brokers who have very similar apps where you can order a ride through an app, you can watch the vehicle as it's coming towards you, pay, th- pay without cash through a credit card or through the internet. He says our existing uh, brokers are embracing this technology. Well, that's all very well and fine, but it's a complete distraction. He's now gone from getting our attention away from the monopoly that the city has to talking about the technology of the communication that we use to to get our rides. And uh, that was what was going on the whole time with everyone. And I've got all these uh, notes here that I got that I just jotted down points that people were making. There was a lot of interesting points made. But at the very end of the whole um, hour and a half, uh, very controversial debate, and by the way, we'll be posting both my conversation with Carancy and the entire show that I'm talking about right now uh, concurrently when this show goes up online. But near the end of the show, I got, I didn't realize I was going to end up like this. I just called in to make a comment. Next thing I know, I'm being put on head-to-head with Roger Carancy and Andy Utman just sat back and let us go to it. And my first question to him was that I had heard him say that the bylaws were there to protect the industry, and I asked him what they're there to protect the industry from. Well, the first thing he says to me is that I heard wrong. He denies that I heard that. However, that was what he said, and you'll hear it in the conversation. And then he says the bylaws are there to protect the individuals who take rides in the car. Yet all he talked up talked about up to that point was the protection of the drivers, not the passengers. And you know, and then he says he wants to protect them against any injury or loss, which is a different <coughs> agenda entirely. And I asked him why that was the city's business. When is it their business to, you know, just look after us and make sure we don't suffer losses from whatever issue? That's not city business as such. And so right away, Carancy kind of comes at me saying, I know where you're coming from. You're a Freedom Party advocate, so I get that. But, but these things protect people. And, you know, I could have come back at him and said, well, okay, then you must be saying what you're saying because you're a Liberal Party advocate. Does that, is that what the argument's about? Um, and he t- talks about the majority of people wanting to be protected. Of course they do, but, but this is a bunch of crap. I had to break in and, and break this whole BS protection racket distraction, which is what it is really, and ask him the question. And here's the big question. Is there or is there not a limit on the number of taxi licenses that can be issued in the city at one time? And he said, yes, there is. And I said, well, that's the whole problem. Nothing else matters. Everything else is a distraction, and then we've got to get away from that. And then he said, you know, he asked me, you know why we have that protection there, quote, protection, a limited number of taxi licenses. They're talking, calling that a protection. And I said, yes, to protect the industry from competition. And he said, no, because there is competition within the, within the industry. And I said, well, within a regulated monopoly, uh, you know, any individual has the right to work under the Constitution of Canada, so let's go by that law instead of the local laws. And, of course, he brings to my attention how there's four companies in London now, whereas before there were five, five or six years ago there were only two. And he says, if, if you think it's protecting a monopoly, I think you're wrong, there are four. Well, you know, the Funk and Wagnalls Dictionary defines the legal definition of a monopoly, quote, an exclusive privilege granted by a government of buying, selling, making, or using anything, and any company having such a monopoly. 
Now, the power belongs to one authority, and that's the government. So it's not a monopoly. You know, real natural monopolies do not exist. If you can find one, you let me know, because every monopoly I know about has been created by the power of government. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a monopoly. It means literally legally cutting out the field of competition. That's the situation we have with Canada Post, for example, and why we don't get door-to-door -door service, because they just won't allow competition. That's what it's all about. And... I pointed out to him, you know, and then he said, well, of course, anybody can come in and apply for a brokerage. Well, but not if the quota's been filled, right? There's no opportunity there if the quota's been filled, and Carancy insists that there is. And then, he, then, then, then I reminded him, hey, you just told me there's a limited number of cabs in this city. And then um, he told me this. He says, the reason why the licenses are capped is because there has to be there has to be a certain amount of money you can get in order to keep your cab up to date, in order to make your cab safe, etc., etc. He goes into the whole uh, protection racket thing again. So, uh, you know, I just told him, I said, look, it, all you guys are doing is, is trying to establish a guild socialism for years and years. You know, you've been limiting trade so that you can command higher prices. The marketplace already does that, you know, and it will expand. It's not a fixed pie, and everybody thinks in terms of fixed pie. That's exactly what he's saying here. Uh, we have a fixed pi fixed pie, and it can't possibly grow. So, you know, he says we're happy that the, the government's come down on breaking uh, on individuals breaking the law, et cetera, et cetera, and that we're not against an Uber app. But the whole thing was a distraction, and uh, certainly far from from uh, anything that should have been said on the issue. Because, boy, I'll tell you, it was getting me going. So. Here's here's a here's a bigger part of this whole picture too. You know, to be fair, or the drivers in the industry, in the in the existing industry, are not capitalists in this equation. To speak to our theme, they're really the labor. The capitalists in this equation are the owners of the four currently permitted taxi brokerages. Because a capitalist is distinguished from someone who's in business or just labor is someone who makes his money using property okay that's the, that's the thing you have to own property so a landlord would be a capitalist a banker would be a capitalist you would be a capitalist if you lent something that you own to someone or charged them to use something that you owned that's the difference strictly between the ists and all the other forms of businesses and um, so the capitalists in this equation are the, are the owners they hold the licenses which artificially restrict the number of cabs permitted in the city and the brokerage owners, you know, are not capitalists because they own their businesses, but because they own this privilege, right? The artificially created local government license that grants them the right to carry on business while prohibiting others from doing the same. And anyone who holds one of these licenses uh, is, in effect, a capitalist, but a, 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 what would you call it, a, a counterfeit capitalist because it has... has Property is not something that exists in reality or under capitalism. It's created artificially by government. So when the owners of any monopoly created by government pay their license fees, they are, in effect, paying for the hired guns to keep the competition off the streets, much in the same way that organized criminals and pimps protect their monopolies from any competition. It's the same thing. It's an age-old political story. It's essentially guild socialism and various forms of gilded shapes and everything. It's driven by a very understandable and instinctual motivation, more for me, less for the other guy, which also appears logical to those who only think in terms of, uh, you know, two-dimensional linear thinking. But the world is a three-dimensional phenomenon, and linear thinking of this sort has been proven wrong time and time again. 
Um, I don't think it has any resolution and no future. It all leads down the path to the fixed pie theory that there's only so much of such and such to go around or that there are only so many people in the market. That's never true. And the fact is the market always adjusts itself to that. That's what prices are about. They never talk about prices because they want to fix them. And that the prices have to be free. They have to regulate because that is what regulates supply and demand. Now, all of this is anti-capitalism in practice, and it makes the business people involved look like the very greedy capitalists that are so caricatured in popular literature and commentary. It blurs the distinction between the business community that exists because of a privilege or prohibition and those who are in their own way and who understand and respect the principles of economic competition and freedom. As Yaron Brooks so clearly illustrated, the battle for capitalism is being lost and the options for capitalists who want to live and work in a free and capitalistic environment are narrowing with each passing day. Capitalism does not exist because of altruism or even self-interest, but because of a moral, intellectual, and political culture that makes it so. It's an economic byproduct of freedom itself. So that's it on that. We'll be returning after this break, and we'll be talking about the game of Monopoly after we first hear from Yaron Brook, and we'll be right back. You were saying the, the battle is being lost. So how do you plan for the future? How do I plan for the future? Given that we're losing, right. I'm trying to get us to win. Well, I know how you're planning, um, but how does, let's say, someone in business, they're not professional intellectuals, um, they, you know, they want to build their lives and, and things, are, things are going down quickly. So how, how do you plan? So I would say two things. One, I, I believe you have to fight. So I, I, I believe it, it, you, you have to do whatever you can to try to convince the culture to turn it around. And, and yes, uh, many of you businessmen are not intellectuals. Support the intellectuals. You know, uh, you know write a check. Uh, it, it, you see, you laugh. Why is it funny? It's true, right? The only way we can do what we do is because you guys write checks. If you don't write checks, we can't do it. Uh, and that's, I'm not telling you to do it sacrificially or altruistically. I'm saying it's in your self-interest. I'm your agent in this fight. Help me. Right? So help those who are fighting the battle. Help those who are out there trying to advocate for capitalism and trying to change the world. Um, you know, and, and in your own life, speak up. You, know, you can fight the battle on any level. You don't have to be an intellectual to fight this battle. All you have to say is, is I don't agree. That's not the way it is. I, you, know, I'm, you know one of the biggest things businessmen can do? This goes to that other question. Be proud. Be proud of your success. Stop apologizing. Stop apologizing to people that you make money. Stop apologizing to people that you're successful and you've done good stuff. Be, you know, let people see. If people had an image, a proud businessman standing up there and defending their, their, their business and, their, and what they've done and how they've achieved. Imagine if, 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 if some of these... Uh, you know, some of these bankers stood up to the stupid senators calling them, you know, and, and actually challenged them. None of them do. They all kind of fold. <laughs> Monopoly. Everybody had Monopoly. Everybody had it. Nobody liked it. Everybody owned it. Nobody liked that game. And it's simple why. This is it. Because this is anybody here two and a half hours into a game of Monopoly. Here it is. Ready? I quit! It's four in the morning, Grandma. You win! I'm sitting on Baltic with crap! 
Don't touch me, Grandpa. She's cheating. I hate when you're the banker, Grandma. Where did you get the pink 50s? Do not touch me. I'm paying luxury tax out the ass. She's stealing pink 50s? No. No. We were poor, man. We were so poor growing up, I actually had to use that little iron. I have to thank my daughter, Danielle, for putting me on to that clip, and it's her birthday today, so happy birthday, Danielle. It's also the 80th anniversary of Parker Brothers' game Monopoly this year, and this very month in Masao, China, of all places, we'll host a 2015 Monopoly tournament sponsored by Hasbro, the current owners of the Monopoly Monopoly, with a prize of $20,580, the amount of money that comes with the Monopoly game. And in the Epic Times, I had a very interesting... Um, an uh, article about the origins of Monopoly. And it's interesting that that should appear in that paper because it's one of the papers that deals with a lot of issues that go on in China. And of course, Monopoly is not a capitalist game. It's always been used as an example of capitalism in action. But if there's one thing it's not, it's a capitalism game. It's about capitalists. And that's very, uh, again, an important distinction. And the article points out how, um, of course, Monopoly is 80 this year, and uh, how did it evolve? Well, for many years, American Charles Darrow was credited with creating the game during the Great Depression. He sold it to George and Fred Parker, who turned out to be the Parker brothers in 1934, and a year later, it was on the market ready for playing. Both he and the Parkers became quite wealthy from the sales of the game. But the truth is that Darrow had revamped a board game invented by Elizabeth Maggie Phillips decades earlier in 1903 called The Landlord's Game, which is much more accurate. And that was a game, Phillips, uh, Elizabeth Maggie Phillips, she was a fan of uh, the economist of the day who was Henry George, and he believed that landowners should pay taxes but not pass on costs to tenants, and that somehow that could eventually reduce or eliminate the sales tax. And Phillips designed the game as a way to show the negative consequences of monopolistic land ownership by men like John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie. Originally, the landlord's game had two sets of rules, an anti-monopolist scenario in which wealth was shared and an alternative where each player would try to gain a monopoly and then win by bankrupting all the other players. Phillips wanted the game to show the moral superiority of the first set of rules and hopefully result in real, uh, real reforms. So here's a game that was actually invented as a, as a, as a, as a sign of protest. However, it was the monopolist rules that took off when Monopoly was marketed, and it became a capitalist game in which the winner has a lion's share of the properties on the board and one by one eliminates the other players, which interestingly w in, in real life would also mean eliminating his customers. <laughs> And it became a capitalist game in which the winner has a lion's share of properties. And, of course, if you believe in capitalism by dice, well, then you have to argue with uh, Einstein, who said God does not play with dice. But... Um, Phillips had been self-publishing the game. For, for all her hard work and vision, she received only U.S. $500 and no royalties from Parker Brothers. Now, how the history of this came to light was very interesting because it came out during a lawsuit. The history of how Monopoly evolved came to light when San Francisco economics professor Ralph Onsbach invented the game Anti-Monopoly. 
where players try to unmonopolize businesses and return the state of the board to a free market system. Parker Brothers sued him for using the monopoly, the name, the word monopoly, in his game. And as part of his defense, he had he researched all the origins of monopoly and found that the Phillips game had been appropriated by Daryl. And uh, interesting too, during World War II, special versions of Monopoly were produced for, for distribution to British soldiers being held as prisoners in Germany. These games included working compasses and files disguised as playing tokens and real money under the Monopoly money and maps within the game board. All were tools that were made to help the soldiers escape their captors. So Monopoly has a very interesting history. It says Monopoly has remained basically the same all these years although different editions are made available from time to time, including one extravagant version that included tokens made from real gold and real gemstones. The game is sold around the world with minor variations like street names on the board representing streets in the marketed countries. And of course, Hasbro is now the owner of that game. I understand too uh, from Paul McKeever telling me, I guess there's a, a Firefly version of, Mo of Monopoly now. But finally, a last piece of advice, and I'll tell you this. If you play the m game of Monopoly by acting altruistically, you will lose. <laughs> but any way you look at it, right now, CHRW Radio Western has the monopoly of broadcasting just right. And to hear our next broadcast live, you'll just have to join us again next week, right here, when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Monopoly. You know why I didn't like it too? Because I had a big family and everybody got a piece. You know, like the, the thimble, the dog, the car. I didn't even have a piece. I had to like remember where I was. <laughs> then I ran and I got the, the knife from Clue. Yeah. I got the clue knife. I would love to really kill somebody with that knife. That'd be great. It'd be so easy to hide. It'd take forever though. You'd be like, I'm going to kill you. What are you doing? I'm going kill you. Put it in a little envelope, hide it. Even if they found it, they'd be like, ah, we found the bloody. I'd be like, ah, but what room did I kill?